0: Matthew chapter 14 verses 22 through 36. Immediately, this is Jesus, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well." Now, we saw last week that there was a, uh, at the feeding of the 5,000, was a reteaching of a previous lesson that the disciples had not learned when he had sent them out two by two without provisions. As we're going to see tonight, even though they picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread, and after having only started with five loaves and two fish, the disciples still didn't learn that Jesus was trying to teach them about his power and his provision. You're going to hear me saying that a lot over the next few weeks. He's been reteaching the lesson about His power and His provision. Go to Matthew chapter 15. You'll see evidence in verses 29, Matthew 15 verses 29 through 39. I'm going to read a story that we're going to be getting to in a few weeks. But uh, in Matthew uh, 15 verse 29 we see that the scripture shows us that they still hadn't quite gotten it. It says, uh, Jesus went on from there and He walked beside the Sea of Galilee and He went up on the mountain and He sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciple to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way." And the disciples said to him, "'Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd?' And Jesus said to them, "'How many loaves do you have?' They said, "'Seven, and a few small fish.' And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over.' Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. So from this story that's coming up a little bit later, what's the evidence that we have that the disciples still haven't learned the lesson of his power and his provision? What did they say? Where are, where are, where are who? Where are we? Remember how we already looked earlier when he sent them out two by two, and he said, no food, no money, no change of clothes. They came back and reported all that they had done, and he realized they hadn't learned the lesson, so he then reteaches it with the feeding of the 5,000. And even though they picked up 12 basketfuls, and they know they didn't do it because it was only five loaves and two fish, and they said, how is that going to be enough to feed so many people? Then a little later, as you're going to see, they get to a similar situation with 4,000 people need to be fed, seven loaves and a few fish, and their reaction is, how are we going to find enough? They still are looking at it. And let me just say this to you right now. I don't know what churches you all go to. Some of you, I know what churches you do. Others, I don't. But let me just say this to you. In most of the churches that I deal with today, that is the reaction that I'm still seeing. Whenever God is challenging them to do something The reaction is we don't have enough money. We can't do this. It's not in the budget. I'm dealing with a church in Ohio that is they know God's told them to hire this staff member because they're growing and neat things are happening. But their reaction is we can't afford him. And one of the things that hinders us in our walk with the Lord is we still have to be reminded over and over about his power and his provision So the disciples, we see, didn't learn, even though they picked up 12 basketfuls. But go to Mark chapter 6, and let me show you how Mark even shows us. I want you to, because I'm going to ask you the same question. How does this passage in Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52, how does this passage show us that they hadn't learned the lesson of the loaves, Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. This is the same account of what we're looking at in Matthew 14 tonight. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. We'll deal with that later tonight at the end. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart at his eye. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. From this account... How can we know that they didn't understand about the loaves? This is an easy question because it says they didn't understand about the loaves. So it's pretty clear, isn't it? Their hearts were hardened and they still didn't understand. And folks, as you're going to see tonight, we're not here to beat you up. We're here to help you see spiritual truth. If you're honest, we all need to be continually reminded over and over and over of God's power and his provision. But I want to show you something tonight that's a little bit interesting. Matthew, if you've been with us in this study, if we've been noticing, is the one that typically had the shorter accounts of these episodes. We've been looking at Mark's accounts of some of these same episodes or Luke's accounts or John's accounts. And we've been looking at those because we wanted to get a fuller picture of what went on. But as we've been studying, if you remember, Mark's account had a lot more detail or Luke's had a lot more detail. Matthew's was always shorter and concise because he was just compiling But interestingly enough, in this story of Jesus walking on the water, Matthew brings out something in this story that the others don't bring out. And that's the fact that Peter walked on the water. Mark doesn't bring it out. John doesn't bring it out. So what we're going to do is we're going to break this down, this story here in Matthew, looking at Matthew 14 and Mark 6 and also uh, looking at John as well. So kind of put a bookmark in your Bible. We're going to be jumping back and forth. Let's break the story down a bit to be able to unpack some of the things that God has for us from this story. Matthew chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, we see that Jesus still hadn't gotten to spend time alone with the Father to deal with the death of John the Baptist. Remember where we were last week, Matthew 14, verses 13 and 14. Now, when Jesus heard this, what did he heard? about the death of John the Baptist. When he heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. If you remember from our study last week, it wasn't just him alone. He was also with the the 12 disciples because they had just come back. Mark showed us, report all they had done. He says, come with me to a desolate place and rest a while and they go off in the boat. They get to the shore, the crowd's there, Jesus has compassion. But remember, when this whole episode started from our study last week, it was because Jesus had just heard about John the Baptist's death, and he wanted to go spend some time with the Father and deal with it. Of course, he knew it was going to happen. He's God. Yet at the same time, he still was human as well, and it's a relative. It's someone he cared about. And as we see in John chapter 11, verse 35, one of some of your favorite Bible verse, because it's the only one you can memorize, Jesus wept. Remember when he raised Lazarus from the dead, even though he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, when he saw the people weeping and he saw their grief, he cried with them. So Jesus knew he needed to go be alone with the Father, but it didn't happen right away because of all the crowds Now, after the feeding of the 5,000, reteaching the lesson that his disciples haven't learned, he sends them off in a boat by themselves. He goes up on the mountain to pray Well, he dismisses the crowds and he goes up on the mountain to pray. And I'm just going to say something to you tonight. Some of you need to still go spend some time alone with the Father to deal with something hard that you've been through. And if you are like most of us, you've probably tried to, but then life happens you get a phone call or something broke. Or, and a lot of times when we try to, well, the Bible says we're to pray at all times and to pray without ceasing. And that's valuable to be continually talking to the Lord. But the Bible also talks about times of secret prayer and prayer closet, if you will, and getting alone with the Father in prayer. And I just want to encourage you. Some of you might not fully know why you feel the way you feel. It could be that the Father has called you to a time alone with Him <laughs> And you've let life get in the way and you never, ever fully took that time. If Jesus needed to still push the guys off in a boat, push the crowds away and get up on the mountain, don't you think you and I need to spend some time just alone with the Father? So let the Spirit speak to you about that. There might be some things that have happened in your life, some disappointments, some loss, some misunderstanding that you don't know why God did what he did or allowed what he allowed. And you've kind of just shoved it in the back of your mind and never fully dealt with it. Learn from Jesus. Learn from Jesus. Learn from Jesus. Make the time to go get alone with the Father and deal with it. Jesus also sends his disciples out onto the lake in a boat by themselves when he goes up on the mountain to pray. Look at verse chapter 14, verses 22 and 23. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And the scripture says, when evening came, he was there alone. Now, I'm going to throw out a hypothesis to you. I believe that Jesus most likely sent the disciples off towards Bethsaida around 6 p.m., if not earlier. During the first watch of the night or just prior to that. Because the scripture says that Jesus was alone and they were already way offshore when it turned to evening. In the Jewish mindset, the day was from 6 a.m. until 6 p.m. Or actually, officially, the next day started at 6 p.m. and went all around that way. But the daylight, daytime was 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., and 6 p.m. is when the evening started. And if you look at Mark, uh, sorry, Matthew 14. Look at Matthew 14, verses 23 and 24. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land. This is important, by the way, that we take the time to kind of flesh out what time roughly Jesus sent them off by themselves. L- let me give you a little insight. The night time was broken into four watches. The first watch was from 6 to 9 p.m. The second watch was from 9 to midnight. The third watch was from midnight to 3. And the fourth watch of the night was from 3 until 6 a.m. So if I said to you, you've got the third watch of the night, what time is your shift? From midnight to 3. So if the scripture says, and look at Mark shows the same thing. Go to Mark chapter 6. If the scripture says that by the time that evening came... Jesus was already alone and the boat was already far from the shore. My hypothesis is that he put them in the boat prior to 6 p.m. Go to Mark chapter 6, look at verse 47. Mark 6 verse 47 says, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. So if what the scriptures here is saying is that when evening came, meaning 6 p.m., the disciples had already been dispersed, and the crowd had been dispersed, And Jesus alone. Now, I say this for a reason. Jesus came to them at what watch of the night? The fourth watch of the night, which is from when to when? From 3 a.m. until 6 a.m. Sometime between 3 and 6, he comes walking on the water. And the scripture says they weren't able to even get across the lake yet. So roughly how many hours had they been rowing? Probably nine hours. By the way, I'm about to go to Israel. uh, March 11th, my wife and I get to go for the first time. Can't wait to go. But I've heard from people that have been, maybe some of you here have been, the Sea of Galilee is not that big. It's two miles by four miles from what I understand. It's not a huge lake. But they've been at it for nine hours. As you're going to see, rowing against the wind and making headway painfully. And in nine hours, they haven't made it across the lake. Well, don't take my word for it. Look again, you're in Mark. Go to Mark chapter 6, look at verse 48. In Mark chapter 6, look at verse 48. The scripture says, And he saw, Jesus saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. We'll come back later on to the rest of verse 48, how he meant to pass by them. Go back to Matthew 14, look at verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So they'd probably been at it for nine hours. Now, they thought that Jesus was a ghost since they saw him walking on the water. But Jesus says, take heart, it's I, don't be afraid. We see that in Mark's account. We see that in Matthew's account. But Matthew shows us that Peter said to Jesus, if it's really you, tell me to come to you on the water. Now, before we go any further, let me just ask you real quick. Is that how any of you would have checked Jesus's ID? I mean, they don't recognize him. They're, not, of course, not expecting to see him walking on the water. So they see this figure at between three and six in the morning walking on the water. It's pretty scary. They think he's a ghost. Jesus says, relax, guys. It's me. Don't be afraid. It's me. And I'm sure they recognize his voice. Yet at the same time, Peter goes, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Most of us would have said, Lord, if it's you, what's the password? <laughs> You know, Lord, if it's really you, who sat next to you at lunch on Thursday? You know, but Peter does something very interesting. And I think God began to show me something last night as I was teaching on this that I haven't seen before. As much as they're not getting it, I think Peter's starting to get it. You see, Peter is starting to realize, Lord, if it's you, I know you. And you're going to have me do the same thing you're doing. You're going to have me join you. Doesn't Jesus say that to his disciples? Because I go to the Father, you'll be able to do even greater things than these. And I think Peter's starting to realize, and let me point something else to you as well. Does Peter get out of the boat and walk on the water before Jesus says come or after Jesus says come? It's after, and that's very important. And I want to chase this for just a little bit. Too many Christians out there have turned faith into, I believe it so much, God has to do it. No, faith cannot begin until God has spoken. You put your faith in what God has said. If he's made you a promise, if he's made a promise in his word, or if you've heard something you know is from him, you put faith in what he said, but you do not believe something so strongly, God has to do it. That's not faith, that's stupidity. Because The Bible says, do not put God to the test. And when you say, I believe this, and therefore I believe God's going to do it, you're actually testing God to see if he won't act according to what you think so strongly. Now, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible, Jim, say, doesn't God say in Malachi chapter three, test me in this and see if I won't open the windows of heaven when it talks about tithing? Yes, I actually could show you more than just that place. I could show you a couple of places where God sets the test and says, test me. But who set the test? God did. You don't set the test. Faith does not begin with you. If you say, I really believe God's going to heal me. Well, that's wonderful. Did he say he was going to heal you? Do you see what I'm saying? Now, the Bible teaches that God heals. But does he heal everybody? No. If you took that theology to its nth degree, nobody would die. We'd all believe it enough and we'd never die. No, the Bible is really clear that as much as God does heal, sometimes he doesn't choose to heal. And he has his reasons and his purposes. Peter doesn't step out of the boat until after Jesus says, come. Go with me real quick to John chapter 4. Go to John 4 and look at verses 46 through 54. In John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54, we see... So he, this is Jesus again, came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and he asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Was it when he was coming to Jesus and asking Jesus to heal? Or was it when he left Jesus to go back because God had said that he would heal his son? He, he was coming to Jesus with request and wanting God to answer his prayer. But his faith began when Jesus said, your son will live. And the guy stopped asking Jesus and he walked back home believing that what he had said was going to happen. Would it have been faith if he said, Yeah, I don't really feel good about this until you come with me and you do it in front of me. That wouldn't have been faith. But Jesus said it and he believed it. And that's what God's looking for. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that without faith, it's impossible to please God. For those who come to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. But by the way, um, if faith can't begin until we know what God has said... And you can't please God unless you have faith. Guess what we need to know? What he said. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Folks, let me just tell you, I'm just going to leave this alone. We've dealt with it already a couple weeks ago. There's a lot of things that God has promised us in his word that we don't believe because we don't know it. But if you really knew what he said, if you really understood who you are in Christ and what it means to actually walk in the spirit, you'd be amazed at how much you could, by faith, act on what God has already said. And you'd be experiencing different things in your life. Again, we're not going to turn it into an unbiblical realm, an unbiblical definition where I believe it. God has to do it. I'm going to name it and claim it and God will come through. No, faith does not begin with you. But once you know what God has said, you can get out of the boat if he said to get out of the boat. Don't miss this either. Go back to Matthew chapter 14 verse 29. We always focus so much on the fact that Peter sank. but Peter did walk on the water for a little bit. Don't miss this. Was Jesus really close to the boat or was he afar from the boat? What do you th- Just give me a hypothetical guess and tell me why you feel that way. It was close enough that they could hear his voice over the storm. And they could see him, but they weren't quite sure who he was. So he had to be at least be far enough away that they didn't recognize him immediately. And it was dark. And it was dark. Far enough that Peter takes steps. He definitely took step. Look at what it says here in verse 25, sorry 29. He said, "Come." So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. This wasn't just outside the boat, one foot in, one foot out. He walked on the water, guys. And got within a few feet of it. And got within a few feet of Jesus. By the way, this is for us, by the way. Has not Jesus done miracles and provided mightily for us in the past? I mean, I, I want to show hands. How many of you have seen God in your lifetime walk on the water? And have, you've, you've walked on the water because you've seen God do amazing things, have you not? Let me ask you a question now. How many of you? Because you've experienced God's power and you've walked on the water, if you will, and seen God do things you couldn't even imagine. You even to this day don't know how he did it. How many of you have never doubted ever since? (laughs) This is for all of us. Me too. After having begun to live by faith, we sometimes doubt. Or doubt he'll do it again or doubt that he'll keep it up. Has he not taken care of you already to this point in your life? But don't we sometimes still worry when the next bill comes or the doctor gives the latest report? Don't we still start to worry a little bit? That's okay. Listen to me. Um, Jesus is going to keep teaching all of us the lesson of the loaves. What's the lesson of the loaves? Trusting in what? His power and his provision. Right. His power and his provision. Don't be surprised, folks, that if you that God doesn't keep making you have to. Trust him again and trust him again. We keep looking at the fact that he had to keep reteaching the disciples like this is a bad thing. No, this is his M.O. You're going to see it all the way through. When Peter was doubting, though, when Peter was sinking, Jesus in his love reaches out and grabs him. I love that. When, G- when Peter began to sink and when he began to doubt, Jesus in his love reaches out and grabs him. Could he have not just said, well, serves you right. Right. <laughs> You know, it's your own fault. If you had just believed, you would have been fine. No, God in his mercy still reached out and grabs him. And I know many a time in my life, God has said, God, you know, I'm trying to get you to trust me more, Jim, but I understand right now you need a little more help. Let me give you a prayer that I want you to begin to learn to pray on a daily basis. And it's from the scriptures. It's a prayer that I believe every one of us as Christians needs to get in our hearts on a daily basis. It's in Mark chapter 9. It's in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 24. Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. And in Mark chapter 9, verse 14, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he is a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they weren't able. And he answered them, "O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Folks, that's probably one of the best prayers I've ever seen in the Bible anywhere. Because that's what Jesus is trying to do with all of us. Just because we believe in him for salvation and putting our faith in Jesus Christ through the fact that Jesus lived the sinless life. Jesus died on the cross in our place. That Jesus rose from the dead by his own power and he's given us eternal life through our faith in him. That's just the beginning. We're saved and we're sealed and we're going to heaven when we die. But part of why he's left us here between salvation and glorification is because he's trying to develop in us a deeper relationship for that time and we'll spend eternity with him, and he's gonna be continually stretching our faith. Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Go ahead, I saw your hand. Oh, unbelieving generation. Is he speaking to the crowd primarily or disciples approach? The, the answer to that question will be answered in Matthew chapter seventeen when we get to Matthew seventeen. <laughs> the answer's too long to give to you right now. The answer yes is both. But we'll get into a lot more detail because in Matthew 17, we're going to see the same story when Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. So when we get to it in Matthew, but it, it's both, but there's more to it than that, okay? So you'll have to wait till we get to Matthew 17, all right? Now, there are a couple things I want to also look at some more in this story, all right? Here's the first thing Matthew's gospel says that when Jesus got into the boat with Peter and the rest of the disciples, The wind ceased and all the boat were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Go back to Matthew 14 and look at what it says in verse 32. It says, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Now, before I go into any more detail on this, let me point out one thing first. Does Jesus reject their worship or does he receive it? He receives it. Now, keep in mind who these young men are. They're Jews. They have been taught from childhood. You don't bow down to anyone but God. I mean, that's the first commandment. There'll be no other gods but me. You don't even make any idols. You don't bow in craven images, anything of that stuff. You bow out only God. And for these men to begin to worship Jesus and say, not you're the son of man, But you're the Son of God is a big deal. They're acknowledging Him as God, and Jesus does not reject their worship. For years, people have said, You Christians have made Jesus the Messiah God, but nowhere does the Bible say that He would be God. Well, first off, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, the scripture says that His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. What's that next part? Almighty Almighty God. What's that next part? The Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace, even the Old Testament said the Messiah was going to be God. If you've never read John chapter eight, you've missed the whole conversation where Jesus is saying before Abraham was even born, I am. And he was claiming deity big time. And not only that, you'll see here and in another place in just a second. When Jesus was worshipped, he received it. He received it. By the way, go to Revelation chapter 19 first. Let me show you a couple of Interesting episodes that shows you the difference in Revelation 19 verses 9 and 10. John's writing and he's gotten to the end of what he's seeing now. And he's seeing the return of Jesus Christ and the marriage supper of the lamb and the new heaven and the new earth. You're going to see. And it says in verse nine of Revelation 19. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John is so overwhelmed by what he's seeing that he actually falls at the feet of this angel who's showing it to him and begins to worship him. First off, does John know better? Of course John knows better. But he's, guys, I don't think we even have a clue as to what is still coming to us. Paul himself, who had gotten to see the third heaven, who was taken to paradise, he didn't know if it was in his body or out of his body, but he knew he was taken somehow to the third heaven. He actually said in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, I consider that our present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed. John is so overwhelmed with what he's seeing now that he just falls at the feet of the angel. And the angel quickly says, don't do that. You only worship God. Go over to chapter 22 in Revelation. Look at verses 8 and 9. I, John... And the one, one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw these things, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. It's a second time. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets. And with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. He's just been seen, shown the new heaven and the new earth and the heavenly Jerusalem coming down. And even though he knew better, he couldn't help himself. Folks, I, I just want to encourage you with this. What is to come, the reward, the glory that's to be revealed is going to blow your mind. But also the angel said, you only worship God. And Jesus, when they worshiped him in the boat, received it. Jesus isn't just a man, folks. Jesus isn't just a prophet. Jesus is God. Let me show you one more evidence of this. Go to John chapter 20. This is an account of the day that Jesus rose from the dead, actually, um, uh, the day and eight days later of the day that Jesus rose from the dead, in John chapter 20, verses 24 through 28. John chapter 20, verse 24 says this, Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came, it's the first day of the week, Uh, that he the same day that he rose from the dead so the other disciples told him we've seen the lord but he said to them unless i see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side i will never believe eight days later his disciples were inside again and thomas was with them although the doors were locked jesus came and stood among them and said peace be with you then he said to thomas Put your finger here and see my hands. And put your hand, put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, "My Lord and my what? Thomas. And my God." Of course, Jesus says, Bless to "You blessed are you because you've seen and believed. Blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe." But again, Thomas's answer is, "My Lord and my God." And Jesus received the worship. Now, we haven't looked a whole lot at John's account of the walking on the water. It's brief, but go with me to John chapter six, because John brings out something in his account of the walking on the water that Matthew and Mark don't bring out, which makes it even more amazing. First off, from what we saw in Mark's account, especially in Matthew's really, when Jesus got into the boat, what happened to the storm that was their problem? It it no longer existed. It no longer existed. When he got in the boat with him, whatever it was that was bothering him was gone. But look at John 6 verses 16 through 21. This is after the feeding of the 5,000. when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. They were frightened, but he said to them, It's I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. What did John add to the story? That as soon as he was got in the boat, it wasn't that, this, just that the wind stopped. They were at the shore where they were going. It's almost like they were like, how did that happen? What's Jesus trying to show them? That you need him in your life or else. Yes, <laughs> definitely. You need him in your life. But I told you, you're going to be hearing it again and again and again. His power, his provision. Folks, I'm going to hammer this for a reason. I know you and I know me. And when the next episode comes in your life and mine, your first thought is not going to be his power and his provision. Your first thought is going to be what? I did a great job. I did a good job. Or how can we do this? You'll get a bill that you didn't expect. And the first thing you will not think is God's going to pay this bill. Your first thought is you're going to look at your checking account and whether or not it's there. You're going to think maybe we'll have a garage sale or you're going to think um, maybe if I cash in a little, my IRA and your brain's going to go through all these ways as the disciples did. Eight months wages won't be enough to give everyone a bite. Let me just remind you, God's going to continue to keep putting you in situation. Yours happens to be a toe. But he's going to continually remind you of his power and his provision. And folks, don't be yourself up. Learn the lesson of the loaves. You're going to see as we continue in Matthew and we especially follow in Mark a little bit, each of these episodes and some of these that made no sense to you in times past are going to make a whole lot more sense when you realize that Jesus is reteaching that same lesson. And when you look at those stories that didn't make sense to us in times past, they're all of a sudden going to make sense, including Matthew 17 when we get there. But you just got to be patient. So, do they get it now? I mean, he's in the boat with them, the wind stops, they're at the shore. They worship him a little bit more, but they still don't get it. Why? Remember what Mark said. They still didn't understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Now, let's go back to Mark's account, though, and deal with something that probably jumped out at you, and we told you we were coming back to it. In Mark chapter 6, look at verse 48. And Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. Let's deal with that. I mean, let's be honest, folks. Doesn't Jesus want to be in the boat with them? Doesn't he want them to acknowledge his provision, his power? Doesn't he want them to see that he's God and to worship him? Why would he mean to pass by them? Why would he, why would he try to go just walk by them? No, he had already had a, at least three to six hours with the Father. I'm sorry? He still don't recognize Well, th- definitely in a spiritual sense. But at this point, they do recognize that it's Jesus. They call out for his help. They're call- oh, your answer, by the way, is you just said to call out for his help. But the answer is in Luke 24. Go with me to Luke 24. Let me show you how there's a similar episode on the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, to set the stage as you're turning to Luke 24... There are a couple of men. One was named Clopas. And they had been with the disciples. It wasn't just the 12. There were the women and there were others. And these two guys had been in the group and they got discouraged and they're heading back to Emmaus on that Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus shows up and he walks along with them, but he keeps them from recognizing that it's him. By the way, did you catch that? In that situation, he kept them from recognizing that it was him. Uh, I'll deal with that later on. We don't have time to get into that tonight. But let me just say this to you. Sometimes God's going to make it. You ever, has, has anybody ever had a time where you said, Lord, are you here? Lord, are you here? Yeah, because he wants us to walk by faith. And sometimes he's going to keep it from us from recognizing, and we know that he's never going to leave us, and he's never going to forsake us because he's promised that. And sometimes he wants us to hang on to that, and he keeps us from recognizing that he's there. But then they, he said, what are you guys talking about as you walk back? And they said, are you, are you like a stranger here in Jerusalem? Have you not been paying attention to what's all gone on? And he says, what things? Even though it all centered around him. And they then begin to say, well, there was this guy named Jesus of Nazareth, and he was powerful in word and deed, and we thought he was the Holy One of Israel. We thought he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. We thought he was the coming Messiah. And some of our women even amazed us because they came back and reported that they went to the tomb this morning and he wasn't there. A couple of our guys, we know who it was, Peter and John, raced to the tomb and found it empty, and they came back and said it was empty. But we just don't know. And look at what chapter 24, verse 25 Jesus says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. The answer to why Jesus meant to pass by them walking on the water, or he acted like he was going further on the day that he rose from the dead, is what Allison just said. He's waiting to be invited in. Jesus is a gentleman. He's not gonna force himself on you. He lovingly woos us, he pursues us, he uses creation, he uses his spirit, he uses his word, he uses other believers, he uses circumstances. He's continually reaching out to us, not only that we would come to know him and be saved, but then after that, he wants to be a daily part of our lives. The relationship that he has designed after salvation is a relationship of abiding where He's the vine. We're the branches and we're to be connecting with him on a daily basis. But does he force us to get up and spend time with him? No. He waits and he offers. Well, let me have you turn to Revelation chapter three. Look at verses 19 and 20. As you're turning to Revelation chapter three and verses 19 and 20, let me ask you from our study of Revelation, who? Was Jesus writing to in chapters two and chapters three of Revelation to the churches? So he's writing to the churches. Listen to what Jesus says to the churches in Revelation three, verses 19 and 20. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. For years, many of us have probably seen that painting, that famous painting of the scripture where Jesus is in the garden knocking on the door. And we've all seen how the door had no handle on the outside, could only be opened from the inside. And we've all pictured that as Jesus knocking on the door of a lost person's heart. And yes, he does. But at the same time, he still is wanting us on a daily basis to invite him in. And to be, oh, he's already there, Jim, isn't he? Yeah, he's already there. But we choose whether or not we're going to walk in the flesh or walk in the spirit. We choose on a daily basis whether or not we're going to rely on his power and his provision or our power and our provision. We choose on a daily basis whether or not we're going to walk with sight or walk by faith. And God is continually re-teaching us the lesson of the loaves. In, in the Greek, it's keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Yes. One thing he said, I'll give you a choice. You want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. Exactly. You want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. But make sure he said get out of the boat in that instance. But you're right. Exactly. We That's a great point. We we have a choice. We have a choice. Exactly. won't take it from you, nobody will. Yep. You got it. And, and that's the whole point is he's waiting for us to invite him. Go ahead, Mike. How many times have you lost something and you search and search and search and say, well, we, might, we better pray now. And then as <laughs> soon as you pray. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yep. Even in little situations, what we consider little situations like that. I had a person ask me a while time, does God care about the little things? And my answer to them was name something big to God. <laughs> and we think that there are big things and there's little things. Name something that's big to God. It's all little things, you know, but you're right. But again, again, he's trying to remind us of that, trying to remind us of that. So here's what we're going to close with in the time we have left tonight. Where is this rest that Jesus offered the disciples? Remember last week? Go back to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 34. This goes all the way back to last week's lesson. The disciples Come back in verse 30, Mark chapter 6, verse 30. They come back and return to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran their on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So when, Jesus, when, when, he, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. So Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to come away with me to a desolate place, and we're going to rest. Where's this rest? They get there, and the crowd's already there. Jesus teaches. He heals. The disciples come to him later on and say it's late in the day. Send them away so they can get something to eat. And Jesus teaches, reteaches the lesson of the loaves, if you will, and his power, his provision, and the whole story of the feeding of the 5,000 happens. Okay, Jesus then puts them in a boat and sends them off toward Bethsaida. He knew full well that they weren't going to make it because he's God and he knows what's going to happen next. He dismisses the crowd, goes up on the mountain by himself. But the disciples spend almost nine hours rowing, and they only make three or four miles. Where's this rest that he offered? Well, maybe it's when they got to the shore, because we just saw tonight, miraculously, once Jesus gets in the boat, the boat's right there on the shore. Well, we didn't cover those verses yet. We read them earlier tonight. Go back to Matthew uh, 14, in the last section that we read in our openings passage. In Matthew chapter 14, look at verses 34 and following. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent all around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick. And implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Go back to Mark 6. Look at verses 53 through 56. Mark's account. After the walking on the water in verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about to the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Let me ask you this question. Where's this rest that he offered? He said, Come away with me and rest. You got it. In him. Go to Matthew chapter 11. Go to Matthew chapter 11. Look at verses 28 through 30. Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What's the very next thing he says, though? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me say something. I want you to hear something. I'm not saying that it's wrong to take a nap. (laughs) Jesus took naps. He even told Elijah, sleep and eat twice. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. (laughs) Sleep and eat. Sleep and eat. I love that passage there's nothing wrong with naps. I'm good at them. When I used to play college basketball a few hundred pounds ago, I actually learned the value of afternoon nap. And I have not stopped napping since then. I am good at them. You know, some of you say, I can't nap long or so that I won't sleep at night. Shh, let me teach you. <laughs> I can take a two-hour nap. Eat dinner and go to bed. I got no problem with napping. So don't hear me say that rest is there are times we need to get physical rest. But the rest that Jesus was offering them was not a physical rest. I'm sure they were thinking physical rest. But the rest comes when we enter into a relationship with Jesus As you're going to see in just a second, we begin to rest in the fact that hopefully if you've entered into faith in Jesus, you're not struggling to hopefully be saved. Hopefully you have rest in your souls that you know if you died today, you'd go to heaven and it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with him. You've entered into that rest, but there's more rest available. There's a daily rest available to us, folks, where we do not struggle. And he says, take my yoke. You actually rest When you're doing what Jesus has for you to do on a daily basis, listen, in his power and his provision. I'm resting right now. I love what he's gifted me and called me to do. And I love preaching and teaching his word. And I know the difference between me up here trying to do it in my strength and me doing it in his power. And I've learned to rest. I'm ecstatic about this month that's coming up. Of March in which I'm going to be traveling all over the country. My wife and I leave tomorrow morning for Fort Walton Beach where I'll be speaking this whole weekend at a couple of different places out in the panhandle of Florida. When we get back I fly to North Carolina and when we get back we fly to Israel and, it's just, and we're even going to take a week of vacation. There's, there's, there's some physical rest there as well but we're going to be resting the whole time by living the life that He's called us in His power and His provision. Take his yoke upon you and learn of him. Don't take the yoke of your pastor or the nominating committee at your church. Take the yoke of your Lord Jesus and you live the life that he has for you. And you will find rest for your souls because his yoke that he has for you is easy and his burden is light. Go to Hebrews chapter four. Hebrews chapter four, look at verses one through ten. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my oath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way and God rested on the seventh day from all his works And again in this passage he said they shall not enter my rest since therefore it remains for some to enter it and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day today saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts for if Joshua had given them rest. God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. You begin to enter this rest by trusting Jesus as your savior. You stop trying to earn salvation. You stop trying to be good enough. You stop thinking that if I pray this prayer or do this thing, you put your full faith in Jesus Christ. You begin to enter that rest. But there's more. And we see here, he says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Do you remember Mark chapter six, verse 52? They hadn't understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. These are guys that are all going to be believers. It's possible for you to be a Christian going to heaven on your way to heaven because he's signed and sealed and he's going to keep his promise. Once he's begun something with you, he'll finish it. But it's also possible for you to be miserable in this life with a hard heart, trying to live for Jesus when he said, I just want you to come and trust me. Do what I ask you. Trust me and enter that rest. Let me tell you, you're listening to a person that for years was, quote unquote, successful in ministry in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of the church. But I was one of the most miserable Christians you've ever met inside. Why? Because I never felt like what I was doing was enough. I always felt like I needed to do more. Is he satisfied with me? Am I working hard enough? Maybe I need to do more. And of course, if you're a pastor, that's not going to work real well because you've got lots of people telling you what they think you ought to be doing. And so you never feel like you're satisfied or never feel like you're there. And there finally came about 20 years ago, a time in my life where I literally said to the Lord, if this is all there is to the Christian life, I know I'm going to heaven, but if this is all there is to the Christian life, take me home. I don't want to live anymore. I'm not going to kill myself. I want you to do it. And God began to show me that I had entered his rest when it came to salvation, but I had not entered his rest on a daily basis. And he taught me what it means to have him say, take my yoke upon you, Jim, and learn from me. And little by little, he's been developing. And I've become an individual that loves the life that God has for me. And we didn't name the ministry that I'm doing now, just a preacher ministries for no reason. Because I'm only going to be doing what he's called me to do and not what everybody else expects of me. And when you find his yoke for you, you will find the joy of what it means to walk with Jesus. Oh, will there be lots of people around you saying you ought to be a part of this and you better be on this committee too and you need to part of this. Yeah, but Jesus dealt with that. And what did he say in John chapter five, verse 19? The son can do nothing by himself. He only does what the father tells him to do. I want that for you, not just salvation. I want you to experience the joy of knowing what it is that God has for you to do. By the way, one of the ways that it'll be evidence that you've entered into his rest on a daily basis, you won't be bothered by what everybody else isn't doing. Remember Mary and Martha? Martha's trying to work for Jesus, working hard. And she even says, Lord, tell my sister to help me. And Jesus says, Mary's good. She's just sitting at my feet and she's chosen what is what? Best. Best. Don't you think that if Jesus had leaned over to Mary and said, Mary, I'm a little dry. Could you go get me a cup of water? She would have jumped up and ran and done it. But until then, what did she do? Just sat at his feet. Peter's starting to get it. Jesus, if it's you, tell me to join you on the water. And he began to experience his power and his provision when he in faith to Jesus saying, come. And he begins to walk on the water. But what did he do? He took his eyes off of Jesus and he put them on the storm and the wind, and all of a sudden Jesus shrunk and his eyes on the storm got bigger and he started to sink. It's okay. Jesus grabs him and he retaught the lesson. As you're going to see when we continue next week, he's going to keep reteaching it. He's going to use a Syrophoenician woman. He's going to use a man that he has to touch two times to heal him of his blindness, even though God doesn't need to touch somebody two times. He doesn't have power outages. All right. You're going to see all these stories start to make a whole lot more sense. Even him coming down from the mountain when his disciples couldn't cast out the demon, when there had been other demons they had been able to cast out. It all is going to start to tie together. But for tonight, listen to Ephesians chapter 1 Verses 15 through 23. We'll close with this last passage tonight. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 15 through 23. Now, as you're about to see very, very clearly, Paul is writing to Christians. Ephesians 1 verses 15 through 23. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Who, is, is he writing to believers that don't know him? They, is he writing to I mean, unbelievers that don't know him or believers that know him? He's writing to believers that know him. And he says, now my prayer is that you'll get to know him better. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. as head over all things, to who? Jesus is over everything, and he was given to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Folks, I can't say any more than this. I want to, but I can't. If you're going to get it, the Spirit of God's going to open your eyes. The same Jesus that can make the storm look like it never happened, And have you end up right where you're supposed to be when you weren't there is the same Jesus that lives within you and me. And He's trying to challenge us to trust in His power and His provision. Whatever that looks like in your life, trust Him a little bit more today. What's the prayer we're going to start praying every day? Lord, I believe. believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.